Hi, I'm Pat Basu, President and CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the host of Focus on Cancer, a regular webcast that answers everyday questions cancer patients have about the treatment and delivery of their care, answered by experts. I am particularly delighted to welcome a colleague and friend onto the show today who is an absolute pioneer and one of the most premier oncologists in the world, uh, somebody who has advanced uh, the, the knowledge, the treatments, the care in cancer at, at every corner, uh, Dr. Markman. Dr. Maury Markman is the president of medicine science at CTCA, and he's joining us from the hospital in Philadelphia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Markman. Thank you, Pat. I'm delighted to be here, and I look forward to uh, our conversation about this incredibly important topic of pharmacogenetics. So today's show is is one that I'm really looking forward to. It's about pharmacogenomics, uh, a very exciting uh, you know area in medicine uh, with incredible opportunities in the future. But before we dive into it, uh, Dr. Markman, just tell us a bit about your your background. What were you doing before you came to uh, to CTCA? Before I joined CTCA, uh, which has now been about 10 years, uh, been a wonderful experience. I was the uh, vice president for clinical research at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Prior to that, I was the director of the cancer center at the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Prior to that, I was the uh, vice chair for the Department of Medicine at Morris Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Started my academic career at the University of California, San Diego, and did my oncology training at uh, the National Cancer Institute and uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Oncology Center. Well, I incredible, incredible uh, background. You've made a difference uh, at so many different places in your career. You're making a huge difference in what you do now. What uh, what drives you? What what made you go into oncology to uh, to care for cancer patients in the first place? I did uh, my. Uh uh, I went to medical school at New York University and did my uh, general internal medicine training at uh, uh, Bellevue Hospital, uh, one of the still one of the premier uh, uh, hospitals in America, an uh, incredible uh, public institution. And I also had the opportunity to participate in the, in the, the private practice setting uh, at New York University Hospital at the time. The reason I, I say that is that at that point, um, it, it became very clear to me that um, there was uh, no other area of medicine, and I was in internal medicine, uh, that was uh, more complex than uh, the care of the cancer patient within the realm of medicine, nor was there any part of medicine that was, in my perspective, uh, more satisfying. The, the patients, their families uh, were so grateful for whatever uh, we could do in, in the cancer space, and I even saw that as a as a general internist, and of course that was uh, decades ago. Um, and I said, uh, both the complexity uh, to be able to have an impact and, and the feeling of, of, of just really doing something for, uh, for a patient and her, his family, there was no other area of medicine that was more interesting, more exciting. Uh, uh, I felt professionally gratifying than that, even personally gratifying. And I have uh, not looked back for one moment to think I made a mistake. There, this has been an incredible journey, um, uh, both at the scientific and at the personal level, dealing with uh, cancer and cancer patients. Well, we certainly don't think you made a mistake either. Uh, you've, you've had just an incredible impact on, uh, on the field uh, of oncology and the battle of cancer care. 
I've, I've spoken to your patients. I've referred some patients to you. You are uh, truly amazing at both the human and compassionate side, as well as the, the scientific and, uh, and clinical side. So again, very delighted to have you on the show. Um, Dr. Markman, excited to get into uh, really the, the focus of today's episode, which is pharmacogenomics. Uh, you know, a, a, a big word, uh, but an important area of, uh, of, of frankly, not just cancer care, but, but medicine in general. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll kind of break this down a little bit, but just, just to get us started from a high level, uh, you know, 50,000 foot point of view, what is pharmacogenomics? Well, pharmacogenomics is a, uh, a really important, uh, incredibly complex area. Uh, the brief description, which makes it sound not so complicated though, is uh, simply what is the impact of uh, our genes on the drugs that we uh, take uh, during our lifetime? That obviously goes from the you know, pediatric area all the way to uh, you know, the geriatric area. Um, and, and that's it. It's, it's a question of what impact does, the gene, does our genes have on, on, on those drugs? That's that's terrific, and, and you know one of the goals, of course, of the show is to take important but complex topics and and really break them down into into those kind of simple uh, simple components. So I appreciate you doing that. So let's break it down even further. I mean, you you look at the word pharmacogenomics, and you know pharmaco, uh, you know meaning the the drugs and and the effect that those have on the body, and we'll get to that in a moment. And then genomics, of course, being you know the the critical uh, foundation of who we are uh, in, in terms of, of genes and the genome. Um, so why don't we just start right there? What, what is a gene and what is a gene's role in our health and, uh, and, and on cancer? Well, Pat, you've just asked uh, some uh, really incredibly important questions. I, I will uh, uh, start uh, sort of almost at the, at the uh, opposite end of the spectrum but specifically uh, because this, what I'm going to mention now is what we're not going to talk about later, but it's really important, uh, at least in this conversation, uh, but um, it is really important in cancer and cancer management. And that is the genes within the cancer itself. And that's a very important conversation. These genes drive the cancers, they drive their growth. They drive the resistance to therapies. So I'm going to put that aside. So it's, again, the specific parts of the DNA of cancer cells that relate to that cancer. So turning to the much broader topic of what are genes within all of us, genes are really described as the basic functional unit that determine um, are hereditary and what it is that makes um, us who we are. It's estimated that there are somewhere between 20, 25,000 of these units within our DNA and uh, they control proteins that we make that control normal functions, but they also control regulatory factors that determine how proteins work. Um, they are very important. They, again, as I said, they're, they're the foundation of the, of the biology of what makes uh, a living organism a living organism. 
I, I very much agree with you. I, I often, you know, tell patients that that genes are sort of the, you know, the foundation or the the blueprint, uh, if you will, that uh, the, the the set of instructions that tells your body, uh, you know, what to produce in terms of those proteins you described, and uh, and kind of you know what what to do next, and and, uh, and and so I think that's a great description of you know how you started. So so what specifically then in the role of cancer? So so if a gene is a blueprint of you know our DNA and and essentially it's telling our cells what to do next. What what is the role of uh, of our genes in in cancer? Does it predispose one to developing cancer? Is it? Can you talk about that a little bit more? You know, clearly, uh, at, you know, at CTCA, uh, as you know, Pat, uh, as a leader of CTCA, that, you know, the genes and, and their potential role impact the cancer patient's journey um, with us. So there, there are three basic uh, strategies or uh, approaches, you might say, in thinking about how these normal genes, again, these are, the, these are genes that uh, are with us from the time of conception to death, when I say normal genes, I mean something has happened to these normal genes. They're in our germline and they can influence uh, that cancer journey. So the first is uh, being able to recognize that um, an abnormality is present before someone develops cancer. And that might be uh, have an impact on uh, the recommendations of members of the family for additional screening that they should um, have, for example, in breast cancer, additional um, uh, more frequent screening or different kinds of screening. Or in colon cancer, if there's a risk because of a genetic abnormality, again, emphasizing they don't have the cancer yet, but they may, may be a recommendation for um, more frequent colonoscopies, for example. So the one is simply to uh, know there's that risk and then to um, potentially screen for that risk in someone who has the abnormality, the mutation. The second area to emphasize is the potential to do something about this beyond screening. And increasingly there's evidence that there are certain prophylactic uh, procedures that can be uh, undertaken, generally uh, surgical, but there are also potential medications that can be given to reduce risk. But for example, in, um, in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, with the presence of a, a gene that many of uh, 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 the listeners and viewers will know is, is BRCA, the presence of that mutation may lead to uh, the recommendation in certain individuals for um, removal of the breast, removal of the ovaries. Again, very carefully considered because there's data that demonstrates that that can um, substantially reduce the risk of those cancers and basically um, improve survival of those individuals. This is again, prevention of cancer. And the third um, reason why this information uh, can be very important, and this is relatively new uh, strategy, is that those mutations within the germline have now been able to be shown to be relevant for certain medications one can give to treat the cancer, because again, emphasizing when I mentioned germline, if it's in the germline, it's also in the cancer, uh, but the presence of those mutations, those abnormalities 
can in fact be um, targeted with specific medications. And that includes now in, uh, in cancers of the ovary, cancers of the, um, of the breast, uh, prostate cancer, pancreas cancer, for example, to very effectively treat those malignancies. And, and you know, this, these, we, you know these, are, these are strategies that are increasingly being used and certainly being used by our colleagues at CTCA. That makes a lot of sense. So, so for our, our listeners and our audience, basically, the first area is to, is to help predict the future risk that one might have uh, based on these blueprints that one might have to develop cancer. Uh, the second would be to inform whether there's some action uh, preventative that, that should be taken based on that. And then the third that you mentioned there would be specifically to look for ways to target the therapy within uh, within a given, a given cancer. Now, you mentioned something that is um, uh, an important term that you've referred to a couple of times, uh, the germline. Uh, can you, for our, uh, for our audience, just kind of define what you mean by that germline and then talk about the difference between genetic mutations um, and the difference between genetic mutations and other germlines? Germline is a uh, very important term, and really what it, what it means is uh, uh, what is in us from the moment of conception in the DNA. Uh, and as we all know, the, when the egg and the sperm uh, come together, uh, half of our uh, her, uh, inheritance comes from uh, the male and half comes from the female. Um, and that's really the, the DNA that uh, comes from half of the male, half of the female. Then from that moment of the mixing together of the DNA, the egg and the sperm, uh, through to um, the end of life, that's the germline. Now, it turns out that um, in some of us, and it's a various numbers and it depends on the particular condition we're talking about, there are major abnormalities um, within that DNA that we call mutations that lead to the potential risk for medical conditions occurring later in life. And this is not exclusive to cancer, but of course, we're talking about cancer here and for example, the BRCA mutation, which um, we talked about briefly, um, that can lead to a risk of uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreas cancer, um, prostate cancer, much later in life. And those are uh, mutations. Those are major abnormalities within that germline. There are other differences between individuals, which are called variants. They're not mutations. And there are actually millions of these variations that can occur from one individual to the next within the germline. Let me emphasize, these are not mutations. They don't cause major problems, but that is in fact the differences that occur in all of us that make it why some of us have lighter color hair than others. Uh, they, uh, they impact enormous number of things within our lives, within our normal biology and physiology that are small and subtle. And there are millions of these that occur within us, that occur within the germline. So Dr. Markman, I sometimes tell patients, I, I use the analogy of, I, I mentioned before, 
of, of genes being the, the plans or the blueprints. And I sometimes use the analogy of a house. So sometimes I say that a variant is your house is very different than my house. The staircase is over here. The bedrooms on the, the right side versus the left side. Those are normal variants. Whereas a, a mutation or something that could put us at risk might be something where something isn't up to code, right? Or something might predispose to a risk. So a, a risk of fire if your, uh, you know, your oven, your stove is not appropriately connected or is in the wrong location. So, so I sometimes use that as, as kind of a, as an example. And that is, is not a guarantee that there's going to be a fire, but it is a increased risk due to um, something being out of code and that being a genetic mutation. The, the last thing that, that I think I just wanted to, to sort of clarify for our audiences in, in the popular science fiction world, I think sometimes people think of mutations as, as maybe something that, that can happen to you and, and it can late, later in life due to some sort of exposure. But I just want to be clear, what you're referring to here is a is an inherited mutation in that germline that presents a greater risk in, in future life as opposed to something, you know, patients have asked me before, okay, if I'm exposed to a chemical or if I smoke, does that cause a mutation in the cell later? Can you maybe just help really just clarify for our audience kind of the, those two those two differences? Yes, I think, uh, again, uh, emphasizing the complexity of the discussion, uh, genes um, can, uh, within a cancer, uh, obviously cells become uh, abnormal at some point. That's, of course, what happens with cancer. So there will be normal genes still within the cancer, of course, but there are some genes that will become abnormal later, and they become unique to that cancer. So we call them tumor-associated genes. But what I'm referring to are the genes that are present at the baseline, within the germline, that will always be with us. So if there's mutation at birth, or again, before birth, in this gene that has a susceptibility to cancer, that will be with us throughout. Can there be mutations that occur later in genes? because of exposure to, as you noted, uh, sun or carcinogens, absolutely. That's, that's terrific, yes. I'm, you know, I think it's really important to clarify for, for our audience because I've definitely had patients who sort of um, think about those two terms. You, you know, one, whether it's the sun is something that happens later and we should think of that as an alteration that occurs later due to some sort of action or, or exposure. What, what Dr. Markman is, is focused on in, in, in the prior description is really something that you begin with, which is an intrinsic, you know, like I said before, the blueprint presents a, a likelihood, not a guarantee, but a likelihood that, uh, that a patient might, uh, that might develop cancer later. So I think it was really important for us to lay that foundation in terms of, of genes um, I mentioned before at the top of the show, the, the, the topic is pharmacogenomics. Let's just briefly talk about the pharmaco part of that before we dive deeper into pharmacogenomics. What is, what is pharmacology, generally speaking? 
uh, just kind of lay that foundation for our listeners so that when we when we get into pharmacogenomics, we know we understand genes and we understand pharmacology and we can kind of put them together. Yes, this is now we, we're uh, switching uh, uh, topics to come back to the genes. So what is pharmacology? It is really the study of what happens to a drug, any kind of drug. This is obviously a foreign substance that we take. Um, now, obviously, it has a purpose, this foreign substance, to have a favorable impact on some bodily function. And again, I'm talking in general terms because pharmacology is a very general science. So you take a drug for the purpose of having a positive effect. And the study of where that drug goes, the impact of the drug on the body, the concentration of the drug that needs to be present for a positive effect, the concentration of the drug that will produce a negative effect, all of that is under the, the science of pharmacology. That's right. And if we just take a very basic example, um, you know, Tylenol, uh, you know, the average dose for most people might be, let's say, 200 milligrams of, of Tylenol. Um, but if you really think about it, uh, it, its effect in your body differs from you to me to somebody else based on a number of things, our, uh, our weight, our metabolism, uh, uh, you know, the amount of muscle mass, how our liver uh, processes uh, that Tylenol, you know, how our, our kidneys are excreting it from our bodies. And for any given person, that can be... Um, that can lead to different doses or uh, bioavailability within the body for variance, varying amounts of time. There's a concept that we sometimes refer to, Dr. Markman, that, that you often uh, refer to of, of the therapeutic window. The idea that there is a, a window, or I sometimes call it a Goldilocks zone, where in order to get the intended effect of the drug, if you have too little, then you're outside of that window and you're not going to achieve what you're looking to do. And if you have too much, you're going to do you're going to do damage. So people who have taken an antibiotic before, if the dose isn't high enough, you're not going to kill the bacteria that's causing the infection. Of course, if the dose is too high, you can have toxicity and, and other side effects. And so, basically, Dr. Markman, um, you know, this idea of a therapeutic window and, and pharmacology, I, I think a couple of concepts. First is that uh, you know for our audience. Each of us has a different therapeutic window for a given amount of drugs, but there are some drugs that have a wide enough window that given those differences, the same dose can be effective. But there are some where it might be a narrower therapeutic window where a given dose for you and a given dose for me might actually not have the same intended effect. Is that right? That's exactly right. And again, it sort of emphasizes the, uh, the, the science and to some extent the art of pharmacology because we are, uh, you know, making reasonably educated guesses for a population of individuals who are receiving a drug. And you gave a wonderful example of Tylenol. I mean, uh, you know, there, there probably aren't, aren't too many people in the United States who haven't taken a Tylenol or the generic version of it. Um, and the vast majority of uh, individuals tolerate it very well. And the reason is because, as you noted, Pat, it's a, there's a very large therapeutic window. 
meaning that um, where effect is seen versus toxicity, it's, it's a large, large range. But that isn't necessarily true for all drugs. And particularly when we talk about anti-cancer drugs, which are potentially very toxic because by definition, the goal is to kill cells, of course, cancer cells, that therapeutic, therapeutic window can be quite narrow. And so that's where we get into those concerns. That, that's right. You know, and cancer drugs are, are absolutely the, the best example of a, of a much narrower therapeutic window in general. That, that difference, that margin for error is much thinner in terms of too much being toxic, not enough, not killing the cancer. And so that's where we have to be much more precise. And indeed, this is where pharmacogenomics really comes in, right? Um, because those underlying blueprints uh, predispose, already there's a certain narrow therapeutic window, but on top of that, the effects of, of your genes and, and my genes just on the, you know, on the, the variants without even specifically talking about um, you know, specific, uh, you know, specific mutations, just generally speaking, can really make an impact on the way that one's body uh, is responding to medications. Um, so, so maybe Dr. Markman, um, if, if you agree uh, with that, give us, give us an example. Yeah, Pat, I think that uh, you've, you've, you've laid it out very clearly. And in case I would, I was even thinking as you're describing the, uh, you know, in your own uh, field of radiology, the importance you, you give a lot of drugs to medica give medications to patients uh, prior to or during the procedure, and you have to be very aware, of course, of the potential impact uh, of of that and uh, the patients that are receiving these these procedures. Um, you know, clearly, um, we've talked about the variation uh, from patient to patient. So the idea of the pharmacogenetics concept is, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could potentially predict prior to giving a drug that this individual may have, um, let's say, more toxicity because they metabolize the drug slower than another individual. Conversely, we might say that this individual may not have as good a therapeutic effect of a, um, of a drug because this is a drug that needs to be activated when it's given to a patient. It's not active in its normal form. In other words, it's given to the drug, gets metabolized to become active. But if we know that, that a patient has a particular variant that says, gee, there'll be a slower amount of activation, then the drug, maybe we need to give more of it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could predict that knowing um, before we even give the therapy through this concept of pharmacogenomics, remember, this is germline. It's present from the time of conception. So you could have this information, this blueprint for each individual patient in theory, of course, and then use that information. Um, so uh, there have been lots of examples in oncology where this concept has um, been explored. And um, perhaps the, um, I might say, the example that is most discussed within the oncology community is that of the drug uh, tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is a very widely used anti-cancer agent. It's an oral drug 
for the treatment of uh, breast cancer. And it has been known for well over a decade that uh, this drug um, is actually, when it's taken, it is not an act anti, active anti-cancer agent. In fact, it needs to be activated uh, in the body to become active. And it turns out that there are variants of the genes that are responsible for this metabolism that do it particularly slowly. And as a result, there's some evidence that suggests that patients who have the, who are slower metabolizers, in fact, do not have as favorable effect on their cancer when they take this drug. And that has been ongoing research now for many years looking at this particular question. It's, it's really very, very fascinating. And I think our audience can, can see the power of this, which is the idea that we can predict in advance whether a certain drug and frankly, to what extent might, might impact them differently and perhaps actually be life-saving, certainly in the cancer arena, is, is really powerful. It's, it's tying not just, as we said before, the pharmacology, but the underlying uh, you know, premise of those genes, of those blueprints uh, to, to predict um, you know, which drugs uh, will work uh, to what extent and, and the dosing and, and, and where are we kind of in our, in our, uh, in the advancement of, of pharmacogenomics, uh, Dr. Markman, maybe just give us sort of a, I don't know, a timeline or, or are we, are we kind of at the, at the cusp of being able to really predict this for a vast majority of, of patients and a vast majority of drugs? Or are we more, uh, at the beginning, kind of in the in the sort of theoretical phase, give us a sense of sort of where we are and how applicable this is today. Well, I think uh, uh, first of all, as you can obviously tell I'm a uh, uh, a proponent of of this approach, and um, and it is and it, I, as I emphasized earlier, and I'll say again now because um, it is really relevant. We are talking about cancer, but this concept is um, applicable for any medication that any individual takes potentially for their lifetime. So, and it could relate to cardiac medications. It could take medications that are people are taking for anxiety or for, uh, for antibiotics, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and so cancer is a component of this, a critically important component, uh, but still a component. So the direct answer to your question is there ongoing research by investigators, quite frankly, all over the world in large consortia that are looking at very large databases of, of individuals who are getting medications for a variety of reasons, also um, studying the variants that they may have. And, and, you know, many of these variants are, you know, 1% of the population or 2% of the population. So you need lots of experience to be able to uh, see if a particular variant, which may be hypothesized to impact an effect on a drug, but you need to be, follow this and you need to follow large numbers of individuals uh, to see if, in fact, um, that uh, hypothesis is correct. So my prediction is over the next five years, maybe a little sooner, maybe a little later, 
we're going to be see this this concept widely used throughout uh, medicine, including in the cancer space, routinely using this information to potentially um, uh, determine whether a particular drug or you know a regimen, which might be a combination of drugs, is um, more likely to be beneficial for an individual patient than another group of drugs uh, based upon this um, information that is present again in all of us as variants in our germline it's it's incredibly incredibly exciting and and i i definitely share uh, your passion uh, for this it's really remarkable that the speed and the dynamism at which this field, uh, you know, genetics in general, um, genomics, uh, but pharmacogenomics in particular is moving. Um, you know, for, for our audience, there is a, uh, there's a concept, some might be familiar with something called Moore's Law. Uh, it relates to the computers and the, the processing speed, essentially, uh, you know, how fast that processing speed can, can double, and it doubles on this incredibly fast uh, exponential rate. Um, if you look at how fast we have moved in, in medicine in terms of unlocking our understanding of the human genome and being able to then act on it, as Dr. Markman is talking about, it's really remarkable. I mean, to give you some context, in 1990, it took 13 years and $31 billion to, uh, to, to fully sequence um, a gene. Now we can do that for a couple hundred dollars and it takes about a day. So the, the progress we've made is just rapid and, and incredibly dynamic. So, so with that, Dr. Martin, maybe paint a, paint a vision for us. Uh, Ten years from now, what might a cancer patient uh, potentially be able to expect? Could they, or maybe even a, a patient without cancer, could, could they go in and uh, and and have their um, their their gene sequenced, and then be told that this given drug at this given dose is is much more likely to potentially save your life than than another one. Maybe, maybe kind of just paint the the potential for this down the road. Absolutely. And 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 before I respond to this this question, this is a a, a moment that I obviously need to distinguish again the. The cancer genome versus the germline. The issue of the cancer genome is that it changes so rapidly. There's so many differences with individual cancers. And a patient with a cancer may have their genome that changes. So that is a very complex and a very different discussion uh, to have. But back to the question you've asked, the germline. I absolutely see a time and not that distant of the future, where each individual will have that information of their germline, the various variants. It'll be theirs. It'll be completely secure. It'll be private, whether it's in the cloud or it's on a pin drive or something new that we'll have in the future. That information will define partially any medication we receive. I can see that patient going into an emergency room for some condition and immediately before any medication is given, the information regarding those variants will be known to the emergency room doctor, even though that emergency room doctor will have never seen that patient before. And that information will help 
determine particular drugs that a patient perhaps should receive in preference to another or medications they should not receive at all. That will become routine, it'll be common, it'll be in the pediatric, in the adult, the geriatric settings. Pat, in your only your area of, uh, I can see a patient you know, going in to, to get a, a procedure and there are a variety of medications that the radiologist may want to give. They'll use that information to know what, what are the drugs we should give or perhaps not give. Um, you'll have that available at your fingertips as well to help that patient. Knowledge of that variation will be very important in radiology, for example. Remarkably exciting, remarkably exciting. And again, uh, thank you for making that distinction between that patient blueprint, their germline, that what is with them versus things that could be changing rapidly in a in a given cancer. Um, so so exciting, exciting future. What what are some of the challenges? What what's kind of holding us back right now from uh, you know making this uh, making that future state the the present? I think uh, we sort of alluded to it, but I'll, but I'll say it directly. Um, it's the, you know, each individual event that we're potentially talking about, that individual patient getting that individual drug is relatively uncommon. A, a, a member of society walking around is not going to know that they might need this particular drug at this point in time. Why would one care about that or that patient care about it? It may be one out of a hundred individuals who may be affected by a particular drug. However, when you take all of the possible variants that again are fixed from conception, and you take all of the possible drugs that an individual may have in their lifetime, and you have that information in a single database that is secure for that individual, then the opportunity for that individual benefiting from this information at some point in their lifetime, when you add the hundreds of different drugs that individuals may take, maybe thousands, you develop a concept where one can say within a health system, you know what? This information is very valuable. We ought to get it. We ought to obtain it. Somebody ought to pay for it. We ought to figure out a place where we can keep it securely for that individual. So it's not that single patient, rare mutation, a drug you'll never know if the patient will ever get. It's the entire universe of drugs that a patient may receive during their lifetime, potentially. The potential variants that may impact lots of different drugs, not just a single drug, that will make this both cost-effective for society, but also cost-effective for uh, you know, individual insurance plans or uh, employers who will encourage this, uh, again, the key is this will always be secure. The only person that is relevant to have this for is for that individual patient. That's where the information will be valuable. So I think we will shift from this idea of this individual rare event for that individual patient to a composite, this is valuable information across a lifetime for individuals uh, and will have a major positive impact on society costs of society for uh, adverse events, for example, improving outcomes, that will make this an imperative uh, as part of our uh, healthcare system. It's a great point. It's a great, it's a great way of framing it. And, and along those lines, Dr. Markman, this is such an exciting field uh, scientifically and, and the progress, but 
But one of the, uh, the challenges and the arts of medicine is, of course, how things translate to communication, how things translate to decision making, and in particular, shared decision making, uh, you know, involving the patient in those. Uh, you know, this is an area where everything from, you know, from obstetrics, uh, you know, with, with genetics around, you know, patient risks to obviously where we're focused on, yeah, you know, talking about cancer. These are complex subjects with a fair amount of sort of statistical analysis that not only does the doctor need to have a grasp of, but then needs to be able to explain that to the patient in a way that they can come to sort of a shared decision-making in, in all of these fields, right, from obstetrics to, to cancer. So I'd just love to get your thoughts on, you know, how are we, how are we changing and evolving as a society in, in translating these complex studies and statistics to, to the bedside and then in communicating it to the patient to, to really drive uh, effective, effective change and, and greater safety and greater efficacy of, of, of drugs. Pat, you've, you've emphasized a really uh, critically important uh, point. Uh, our knowledge may be escalating uh, at, at revolutionary uh, speeds. You mentioned Moore's Law. But our ability to communicate uh, complex ideas um, has not changed much. Uh, humans are humans. They have their hopes. They have their fears. Um, they uh, have individual needs uh, in terms of um, how that information be, needs to be uh, provided to them. Uh, the fact that we have this massive amount of information doesn't change uh, the complexities of communication. One of the uh, terms that has been used that, that I, I like um, because it, I think it emphasizes the point is um, we need, that is uh, we being uh, the physician community, uh, and obviously we're talking here specifically about oncologists, but you can generalize that to all physicians and patients and their families. Um, we need to come up with uh, better strategies uh, for decision support because Ultimately, as you highlighted, it is a decision of a patient, generally with her or his advisor, you know, their family, and of course, that's going to include the physician, but we need to figure out ways of, of supporting that decision, whether that is uh, in terms of uh, simplification, not oversimplification, because, you know, you can make something so simple um, that you're not providing adequate information to make the decision but um, tools to do this. Obviously, um, we've talked a lot about, um, uh, about decision support and artificial intelligence strategies to help uh, make things that are very complex um, simpler. They'll never be simple, but I'm hoping in the future we will come up with strategies that can take these very complex uh, concepts, uh, this very complex information, and provide it in a way uh, that uh, does allow that patient uh, with, again, her or his advisors after asking questions uh, that are essential to be able to make uh, those informed decisions. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, you and I, you and I get a lot of questions even from physicians asking about, uh, you know, what is maybe, if we go back to that 5FU example, you know, what is the risk uh, in a patient who has this, you know, this 
uh, germline mutation, let alone, let's say that risk is one in 10. Okay, well, what does that mean in the context of the patient's therapy? One in 10 to one patient might mean something that they don't want to do or that we shouldn't recommend doing versus to, to another patient that we should. And, and, and sort of the balance of, of um, you know, kind of risk-benefit analysis and the context of, uh, of these complex calculations and statistics as well as just communicating, I think, is, is of equal importance as, as is the advancement of science. And, and you and I both spend a lot of time on, on that communication and that uh, edification. And I agree with you. I think technology certainly has a tremendous role to play um, in making that uh, more accurate, but also also good, good communication with our patients does as well, which is a, um, a, a good segue kind of into the, the final uh, part here, Dr. Markman. Uh, we've got uh, questions, a lot of questions from patients who, who email us asking us questions and, and would love to just uh, uh, share a few of them with you and get your, get your responses. Um, on today's topic, uh, this patient asked, aside from studying how we might respond to existing drugs, are scientists far enough along that they're using pharmacogenomics to develop new drugs? What would you say, Dr. Martin? Yeah, I would say that this is a uh, topic for the future. Uh, you know, uh, we are increasingly, when I say we, I, it's, it's this, uh, this, this large we, because I am personally not uh, a, uh, a drug developer. Uh, but the uh, individuals who are um, really focusing on drug development are increasingly using uh, unbelievably sophisticated um, models um, that, in, you know, again, going back to this area of artificial intelligence, knowing the structure of drugs, knowing the structure of the cancer, knowing the molecular abnormalities down to just unbelievable detail. Yes, the potential would certainly exist to um, develop drugs, to tweak drugs, to uh, use, um, you know, this kind of uh, incredible uh, design strategy uh, to uh, impact um, in a positive way um, potential uh, issues of uh, the variants of, that are present within some individuals um, in the pharmacogenomic area. So yes, that is a topic for the future. It is, it is not today uh, what is being done, but absolutely I could see this for something happening for the future. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Uh, here's another one. Um, this one is, is from a patient, Dr. Markman, about the power of knowing your hereditary cancer risk. We have a lot of colorectal cancer in our family and I've been doing some research and I wonder if I have Lynch syndrome. How may I find out? Uh, very good question. There, this is a uh, an area that is, of course, precancerous uh, until there is a cancer. Um, I would certainly suggest a consultation with uh, gastroenterologists. Uh, there are genetic tests that can be done, um, uh, and that will. Uh, these are uh, defective again, defective in our in our germline, uh, and that information can be determined with uh, 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 basically genetic tests. Thank you. And, uh, and, and another one somewhat uh, similar uh, from a patient uh, who said, my mother died of breast cancer. Uh, very, very sorry to hear that uh, uh, from, this, um, from this member of the audience. But question is, my mother died of breast cancer. Does that mean that I'll, I will inherit the cancer from her? A very common question. Um, 
The fact is, um, and these are facts, these are, this is not something that you know, I wish would happen. I wish, in fact, the exact opposite. One out of eight women um, in this country will develop um, breast cancer during their lifetime. Now, that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that one out of eight women will die of breast cancer, will they develop um, breast cancer. The reason I say that is because uh, breast cancer is common, and uh, very common in women uh, get during a lifetime. And so um, to say that, uh, again, this uh, individual is asking about their mother, the fact their mother had breast cancer, that doesn't mean that they will uh, have breast cancer. Obviously, there's that potential, uh, but uh, it, it uh, simply because it turns out breast cancer is a, is a cancer of, of, of uh, aging, uh, like many other cancers are, uh, that is certainly uh, not a given that that individual will have um, a family history. Now, the specifics of that, of course, one would ask, would suggest that the, this individual is asking the question, talk to their own oncologist, excuse me, their, their potentially their mother's oncologist, because they, did, they didn't, uh, or their primary, their primary care physician. And, you know, a detailed history might be taken. There might be other members of the family who have had uh, cancers that would raise the concern about a potential hereditary risk. But again, direct answer to the question uh, of the fact that this uh, individual's mother had breast cancer does not mean that they in fact will inherit um, uh, or have inherited a gene uh, or that there is a gene in that particular family uh, that we can identify that increase the risk of breast cancer. Thank you. And then, and then a final question, uh, obviously, you know, we as a, as a nation, as a society still continue to uh, to battle um, this raging, uh, you know, COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, clearly, uh, you know, continues to affect everyone's lives and is on on everyone's minds. So, um, you know, one of the one of the questions here, very specific about COVID nineteen, uh, with current or upcoming COVID nineteen trial vaccines in the future, how should cancer patients approach decisions about which vaccine would be safe? Wow, <laughs> what a question. Uh... I think that um, we're going to have get a lot of information over the next several months uh, that is certainly not available today to uh, answer this question. Uh, it, it's you know absolutely extraordinary as someone who's been involved in uh, clinical investigative medicine now for uh, almost four decades, uh, the speed at which the um, pharmaceutical community uh, investigators around the world that are working on uh, developing effective vaccines is, is truly extraordinary. There are you know, at least a half dozen, not a, if not a dozen potential candidates uh, for vaccines that may, uh, quite frankly, revolutionize our view of the management of this uh, horrible va uh, virus. All of that being said, we simply don't know today um, any information uh, that can tell us uh, either the most effective vaccines, the safety profile of the vaccine, uh, which vaccines might be most relevant for a population that, uh, for example, is elderly versus perhaps younger? What about the, the cancer survivor? Is there, again, this is a rhetorical question because we don't have the answer, um, you know, a population of, of individuals who have had cancer, recovered from cancer, might have been treated for cancer uh, with drugs. Is there one vaccine that might be better? Uh, that information is critical. Hopefully, and I have no direct knowledge of this, uh, cancer survivors, not necessarily individuals who are receiving anti-cancer therapy because it is unlikely that they would be included in trials that is active cancer 
uh, individuals that are receiving anti-cancer therapy, but individuals who have a prior history of cancer, hopefully they are being included in some of these trials so we can get some information that's relevant to that population. But the bottom line is hopefully over the next several months, we'll have a lot of information with a number of vaccines to directly address the question, critical question that's just been addressed. Well, thank you. This has been a, a very uh, enlightening uh, dive into, um, into pharmacogenomics and the impact that it has on cancer. Uh, I think a really exciting lens into the world of, uh, of, of genes and, and, uh, and, and what the potential holds in terms of unlocking the, the secrets there. We could, we could talk for hours about some other, other topics uh, related to this uh, for sure. Um, I'd love to just conclude by asking you uh, any any uh, advice that you have for uh, for patients or, or final things that you'd like to share for, for our audience. I would just uh, say for uh, individuals who have cancer, who are receiving cancer treatment, uh, the advances that are occurring uh, on all fronts uh, from uh, modern uh, surgical truck techniques to radiation strategies that improve efficacy and decrease toxicity to, of course, my area of interest in anti-cancer therapies, the changes are, are, are just incredible. Um, advances uh, leading to um, improvement in the survival and critically important quality of life for cancer uh, and cancer therapy for patients. Um, the this rate of uh, improvements uh, are, are, are accelerating and the future holds a great promise uh, for individuals who are diagnosed with cancer and of course, we want to find much better ways of finding diagnosis, make a diagnosis early, and very importantly, in preventing cancer. Well, Dr. Markman, thank you again for taking time from your very, very busy schedule to uh, to come on the show. Uh, incredibly fascinating topic. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing all of the, the latest and greatest updates. And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, doing a deeper dive with you on the next episode where we're talking about uh, advances in, in precision medicine. So, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Pat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, very important topics. Uh, the changes here are so exciting for our patients and uh, I look forward to uh, our next conversation. Outstanding. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you on the next show.